The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today it is a great honor to welcome Dr. Peter Green, who is a gastroenterologist, a professor of clinical medicine at Columbia University in New York, and director of the Celiac Disease Center. Dr. Peter Green, welcome. Thank you very much. Hi. I wanted to speak to you because it seems to me I've been in practice as a dietitian for well over 30 years, and 30 years ago, if we had one patient with celiac disease, it was quite the oddity, and now it seems that really everybody and their brother knows someone with a gluten intolerance. How can you explain that? Yes, it's uh, celiac disease is really an emerging disease. There's evidence from blood studies that have looked at stored serum that was taken 50 years ago. Uh, It was actually young men who were going into the Korean War. They had serum samples saved and they're top quality and only 0.2% of these 10,000 serum samples that were mainly from white 20-year-old men were positive for celiac disease antibodies. And then if you look now at the same cohorts as 20-year-old white men or 70-year-old white men, it's about 1% positive for celiac antibodies. So over this 50-year period, celiac disease has increased four to five-fold, and that's really quite amazing. Now, by far, the greatest percentage of people who have celiac disease are not aware of it. There is still a very high rate of underdiagnosis, especially in this country. But it is becoming more common and there's, as you mentioned, there's increasing awareness about gluten sensitivity. As I told you before we went on the show, I had got a call from someone from CBS because if you go to Google Trends, celiac disease symptoms was the fifth most common entry into Google behind David Letterman, Daily Show, used cars, and there was one other, and then it was celiac disease. So it's really quite incredible. So if I'm understanding you correctly, there really is an increase in incidence of the disease as well as an increase, certainly, of diagnosis. But it's not that we're getting better at diagnosing. We seem to be seeing an increase in the incidence of the disease itself. Yes, the disease is increasing. Now, that's all the celiac disease out there. And there is increasing rates of diagnosis, but the rate of diagnosis in this country is low compared to other countries. Like in Finland, they've diagnosed 70% of the 1%. So 0.7% of the population in Finland are on a gluten-free diet because they have celiac disease. There's a very high rate of diagnosis in Ireland, Italy, and Australia, But the rate of diagnosis is low here, and the last figures that we could get hold of was that only 5% of the 1% with celiac disease are diagnosed in this country. So 
you know, it is very difficult to find out what's going on in this country because of the healthcare system, and it's easier in other countries. But they're the best figures we have now. Do you have any idea what's causing the increase? No, you know, to have celiac disease, you've got to have particular genes uh, of which 30 to 40 percent of us have. You've got to be eating gluten, and then there appears that there has to be some kind of environmental trigger. So 30 to 40 percent of us have the affected genes. About 100 percent of us are eating gluten, but only one percent get celiac disease. So. We know some of the environmental factors in childhood. It's like a lack of breastfeeding, early or late introduction of gluten, uh, childhood infections, uh, being born by caesarean section are some risk factors for children getting celiac disease. But we don't know why adults get it. and we don't know why some people can get it at age three, other people 30, or even age 80, you can um, come down with celiac disease, and we're not aware of that. What happens, we're not aware of the reason for that. What happens exactly when someone is sensitive to gluten? What happens in the gut? Okay, so, you know, one needs to get the terminology correct. So... Like we refer to this group of conditions as gluten-related disorders, of which celiac disease is an autoimmune condition triggered by gluten ingestion in genetically susceptible people. And then you have a true wheat allergy that's more common in like childhood as a food allergy, like in bakers get baker's asthma due to gluten sensitivity. And then there's increasing emergence and awareness of non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So we know a lot about celiac disease and wheat allergy, but we know very, very little about the last group, which is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So, so I think your question was, was about what happens like, in what the... happens when you have celiac disease, right? Right, or so, or a gluten sensitivity, uh, and okay, I'm assuming so, that both of those situations will both cause harm to the gut. Well, we don't know what gluten sensitivity is about. Actually, we know that individuals can report that they feel better when they withdraw gluten from their diet and not have celiac disease, and in those people who don't have celiac disease but have a gluten sensitivity, the the gut is normal. Mm. We don't know what accounts for those symptoms and why people improve, but we are very much aware that it is a real entity. Now, we know a lot about celiac disease. Interestingly, none of us digest gluten properly. When we eat meat protein, our digestive enzymes chop up all the protein into amino acids but when we eat gluten, our digestive enzymes can't digest it up uh, fully, and we're left with these larger molecules, and they go in, get into the intestine, maybe during infections or some other circumstance, and they incite an immune reaction and inflammation, and the villi in the intestine that are the little finger-like protrusions that are increase the surface area and allow us to absorb our nutrients, they shrink. So 
the biopsies show, of the intestines show inflammation and villous atrophy. And that's the hallmark of celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And then when people withdraw gluten from their diet, the inflammation goes away and the little villi grow back. So we know a lot about that in celiac disease, but in people who have gluten sensitivity, we're not aware of what the um, actual mechanism of that is. Mm. Are, are there classic symptoms that might get you to to assume that the individual is sensitive to gluten? So the clinical manifestations of uh, celiac disease are very diverse. You have people at one end of the spectrum that are very, very sick with severe diarrhea, like and profound weight loss. And at the other end of their spectrum, you have people that have no symptoms at all. The most typical symptoms are gastrointestinal symptoms of like bloating, diarrhea, abdominal cramps, increased gas, and with people often getting a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome. That's probably the most typical. But, you know, you can have numbness and tingling in your hands or feet, uh, fatigue, muscle cramps, could just be manifestations of celiac disease, constipation in other people, anemia, osteoporosis, peripheral neuropathy. Another way of getting diagnosed is that people are in high-risk groups, like family members of anyone with celiac disease, people with Down syndrome, people with various autoimmune conditions are at increased risk, and they often get picked up without having much in the way symptoms, just because the physician is aware that about 10% of people with, say, type 1 diabetes have celiac disease. So diabetologists typically will screen all type 1 diabetics for celiac disease. Hmm. So that's an increasing group that's getting diagnosed. This is a fascinating area of study. And it seems that with so many people walking around really not knowing that they have it and yet suffering the adverse consequences, what kind of advice can you give the average consumer out there? They have a set of symptoms that seem persistent and can fit into this category of having celiac disease. They should ask their doctor to um, get tested. Now, you know, there appears to be increasing awareness amongst the public and maybe that's not carried over into the medical field because doctors aren't taught very much about celiac disease and we see many people here in the celiac centre and they say, oh, I went to my doctor and asked to be tested for celiac disease and, you know, he said no or she said no, I won't do it because I don't think you got it, you know. Mm-hmm. Most people don't have it, etc. And then often when it comes back as positive, you know, I asked the patient, oh, was the doctor surprised? And, yeah, the doctor was quite surprised actually. So to get diagnosed with celiac disease, typically... Uh, people get the blood test done, and when they're positive, they get referred to a gastroenterologist for an intestinal biopsy because you can have like false positive blood tests. So we think that it's not just reliable enough to have the positive blood test. Mm. Many people who think they have gluten sensitivity may well have celiac disease, and they've gone on the diet and felt better and say, well, I've got gluten sensitivity when... Um, you know, one study from Australia showed that many of those people were never adequately tested for celiac disease. So, you know, if one's considering, like, trying to change their diet, 
and withdrawing gluten, it's probably better to try and get tested for celiac disease before you know you, one withdraws gluten from the diet. Well, I'm assuming that these tests are quite expensive, and you mentioned briefly about the state of healthcare in the United States. It's very difficult for people who don't have health care coverage to really pursue these different tests. Would you agree? Most definitely. Um, in you know, So celiac disease is common all around the world, and in many countries uh, the gluten-free diet is supported by the health care system. Like if you have celiac disease in the United Kingdom, the doctor writes a prescription for a gluten-free diet and you get the gluten-free food delivered to your house. In Italy, they give you extra money to buy gluten-free food and actually two days off a year extra because it's more difficult to go shopping. Many European countries also support the diet, you know, as like like a pharmaceutical benefit, Mm. uh, either giving people a tax break or actually providing the food or giving extra money. So it's... It's regarded as a serious disease that has a therapy, and the therapy is a gluten-free diet. We, we did a study, and we showed that the gluten-free diet is more expensive. Like any item, if you get gluten-free pasta, it's much more expensive than regular pasta. So any corresponding item is more expensive and difficult, more difficult to obtain. There's like 100% availability on the Internet, and then you've got to go to upscale fancy food stores, you know? Absolutely. Um, and with a paucity of gluten-free products in the average supermarket. Right. Well, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Peter Green. He is a gastroenterologist and professor of clinical medicine at Columbia University, and he's also the director of the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University. Dr. Green, I had no idea really the enormity of the problem I knew that there was a greater incidence, people were talking about it more often, but to me the enormity of the problem also stems to the lack of access to health care. And I think about people, for example, living in small rural communities with the lack of access to gluten-free foods, and even those foods that are labeled as gluten-free may not indeed be gluten-free enough. And then there's the problem with just our food system in itself, that there's so much commingling of grains that it's very difficult for people to follow a gluten-free diet specifically. You know, it is very difficult and, you know, it's shameful in this country. You know, the uh, FDA was supposed to come out with guidelines for what's gluten-free in 2000, I think it was by 2008, and they still haven't issued guidelines as to what they're determining to be gluten-free. And that is totally ridiculous. Like, any product that you buy in a packet or a container in Brazil has got on it whether it's got gluten or not. Any product you buy in Australia has got on it whether it's got gluten or not. All other countries, including so-called developing countries, can determine what's gluten-free, but the FDA in the USA can't get to that as yet. There's currently, it's been open for public comment, and I'm not quite sure why they need public comment to determine what's gluten-free. There are scientific guidelines as to what is gluten-free, and this country should be in line with the rest of the world so that people can buy 
say, Italian or Australian or Irish gluten-free products. Gluten is the protein component of wheat, rye, and barley. And we know that oats are gluten-free, but the average oats that you buy are actually contaminated with uh, wheat. So people are advised to eat oats when they have celiac disease, but they've got to buy special oats. They've got to be gluten-free oats. So it it's, can be, you know, it is very difficult for individuals, and there are very definite socioeconomic restraints on people. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, we did a study with some colleagues in Boston and showed that like, if you had diarrhea, it didn't matter what your income was. You tend to get diagnosed with celiac disease. But if you had other manifestations like osteoporosis or anemia, then all the people that were diagnosed were from upper socioeconomic zip codes. We looked at zip codes to... Uh, determined as a surrogate for income. So, like, you know, it's uh, unfortunately an upper socioeconomic disease, you know, in this healthcare system. Yeah, it's a real tragedy. And for our listeners who are concerned about their own personal health, do you have any advice in terms of how we might all come together to make this a better system? <laughs> Is that celiac system or healthcare Well, system. healthcare system. In particular, yeah. now we have a group of, of people who are ill, who are suffering with symptoms, and the access to care is maybe poor to none, and the access to the food that would make them feel better may be poor to none. Where do we start to fix the system? Well, you know, it's a very great problem in this country, and, you know, the politicians are uh, talking about reducing the so-called entitlements, like like they're a bad thing, uh, which is like looking after your population. So yeah, it's, a, it's a problem. You know, specifically in regard to celiac disease, there is increasing awareness amongst the population, but it's, it hasn't like trickled down to the medical profession. Um, and part of that is because the pharmaceutical industry is so important in the direction of healthcare in this country and there's no pharmaceutical agent um, currently available for people with celiac disease. So the only cure is to, well it's not really a cure, but the only treatment to relieve symptoms would be to avoid gluten entirely. To relieve the symptoms and to reverse the disease is a gluten-free diet. I see. And then you know, that's a gluten-free diet. Now, many people who are on a gluten-free diet, like, cheat. Um, and that's like not being on a gluten-free diet. Right. Uh, you know, one has to try to, um, you know, maintain the gluten-free diet. And, you know, it can be difficult. That's why, you know, anyone can go on a gluten-free diet, but we encourage people who are considering doing it to make sure that they have celiac disease Uh, excluded uh, before they go on the diet. You know, it's interesting. I was speaking with a farmer about the rise in incidence of celiac, and he had a theory. He said, you know, years ago, the ancient grains really didn't have a lot of gluten in them. But with hybridization techniques, we've developed wheat that has much higher levels of gluten, and he believes that that increased exposure 
is something that led to the increased sensitivity. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, we were getting to that earlier on, weren't we? Because, like, you know, to have celiac disease, there are these three factors. The genes, and that hasn't changed. Gluten, you know, that probably has changed because there is good evidence that ancient grains like didn't have any of the toxicity uh, that current wheat does for people with celiac disease. So in the whole domestication process, wheat has been bred to to be more glutinous because mm-hmm. that's what gives bread the quality that we all like, the taste and the consistency. That's because of the gluten in it. And so it's not only genetic engineering currently, but it's like old genetic engineering, which is just the breeding of, you know, crossbreeding and breeding stronger wheat. Um, and then there are other factors. And, like, you know, we don't really know what they do to our food because they don't have to tell us. But we're all eating food that's transported into the cities from often great distances, and they do things to the food to make it look good and stay good, etc. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know what they're doing because they don't have to tell us. You know, if they add natural products to, to food, they don't have to write that on any label anywhere. Right. And, like, we're not eating locally anymore, locally grown food. Um, it's really fresh stuff, so... You know, it's, there are a whole bunch of steps along the way that might be responsible for um, the development, increased rate of celiac disease. It's like um, we know that allergies and autoimmune conditions have increased markedly, and celiac disease is like this is this unique autoimmune condition that the one autoimmune condition that we actually know the environmental precipitant for, and that's gluten. Do you think that increased exposures to endocrine disruptors in our society and our environment have weakened our immune systems to further move the incidence or the increased incidence of these autoimmune diseases along the line? Well, it's not clear because, like, actually when people have an autoimmune condition, their immune system is revved up, Mm -hmm. Um, like, you know, because they developed an immune response to something that most of us don't develop an immune response to. Like like our intestines have this ongoing immune surveillance to protect us from foreign proteins and infections, etc. And it's like a tolerance, like our intestines have a tolerance and then when that immune tolerance is broken down, you can get celiac disease. So we don't know the mechanism of why that happens. Um, you know, why some people who didn't have celiac disease suddenly developed an intolerance to gluten and had have this autoimmune condition. We just don't know what the mechanism is. You know, one can theorize, but it's not really clear. Do you think exposure to foreign proteins through some of the genetic engineering that's been happening, not necessarily with wheat per se, but with with other crops, do you think that if the gut is repeatedly exposed to foreign proteins, that that somehow weakens or revs up the immune response? 
you know, I don't know. <laughs> okay. Like um, some of the other conditions that gastroenterologists deal with, such as Crohn's disease, right. um, that appears to be a heightened immune response to bacteria that, mm. that we have in our gut and tolerate just fine. So we don't, I th- you know, I'm not aware of the literature that has provided insight into like, why people's immune tolerance um, can break down or be revved up, you know. Dr. Green, we just have a few minutes remaining, and I want to make sure I give you an opportunity to say anything about celiac disease or gluten intolerance that I may have neglected to ask you. Yeah. Actually, I may as well plug my book. Actually, we have this, me and a patient wrote a book called Celiac Disease, A Hidden Epidemic, um, and uh, we really talk a lot about what the mechanisms are and what the symptoms are, etc., so, and obviously, a lot of people are going to Google and uh, looking up what the symptoms are. But um, so, celiac disease is a very common condition. It's actually easily diagnosed. The difficulty appears to be physicians thinking of testing people because when one does the test, they they usually positive or negative and can lead people along the path to getting a diagnosis. And it's really quite incredible that people can be so sick and have such a variety of manifestations, and it's all due to a food that the bulk of us tolerate absolutely fine. So, you know, we've got a a lot of... There's a lot of work for us to do. You know, there are only a couple of celiac disease centers in the country, actually, and for a condition that's very common. You know, so... There are lots of avenues for us all to do extra research, actually, and to work out what's going on. And do you think there's anything that people can do to prevent the onset of this condition? For example, maybe limiting the amount of wheat in their diet or gluten, uh, limiting, say, exposure to large servings of of Well, like if you didn't eat gluten, you wouldn't have celiac. Most of us are eating gluten, you know, so um, there's a lot of interest in preventing celiac disease in children who are at risk, Um, Mm -hmm. like uh, 10% of first-degree relatives uh, of family members who have celiac disease will develop celiac disease, and so there's like a big study going on in Europe um, that's looking at the timing of gluten introduction. Um, like we know that breastfeeding is protective and currently what we advise is for people to have a little bit of gluten given to children while breastfeeding between four to six months as being the most protective um, and preventing the child from getting celiac disease. Well, Dr. So that's what they advise in Sweden actually and that's what we advise people to do. Um, but also... Um, we'll give uh, people a cheek swab to test the children to see if they have the gene because if they don't have the gene, then you can't have celiac disease. So that's actually a very valuable test. Um, 
Well, Dr. Green, unfortunately, I'm going to have to end our interview. We're out of time. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise today. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Dr. Peter Green, gastroenterologist at Columbia University and head of the Celiac Disease Center. For more information, please check out his book, Celiac Disease, A Hidden Epidemic, and go to www.celiacdiseasecenter.columbia.edu. Thank you again, Dr. Green. Thank you very much. 